Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks so much for listening to the Car Tech Garage, where Max and I keep cars interesting every single week. Yeah. Welcome to another week in automotive history. Hey, that's what we're doing. Yeah, let's buckle up and take a ride through this week in automotive history. I'm going to go ahead and kick it off. Um, June 6, 1964. I know we always kind of dive right into the meat and potatoes here. We don't have a lot of time for small talk. But that being said, uh, let's talk about the cool stuff, because I don't think you guys want to hear us ramble on about nothing. So, June 6, 1964, 57 years ago, the very first McLaren made its racing debut. Um, and this one, I, I love this McLaren. It's called the M1A. So it was basically a very heavily modified Cooper frame um, and some really gorgeous bodywork, might I add, with an Oldsmobile V8. That's basically how, um, how so Bruce McLaren yeah. thought to build it. It was kind of a Frankenstein. It really was. He just took an, like, a Cooper chassis and he stuffed uh, a, a, an Oldsmobile V8 in it. And over time, obviously, the, the car evolved and, and really ended up uh, dominating a bunch of sports car races. But on this day, Bruce McLaren himself took the win in Ontario, Canada. Totally dominated the race in this little thing. But uh, you have to check it out. The McLaren M1A. Look up some pictures of it. It's, it is, uh, it's fire. All right, June 7th, 1992. This one's a little bit more recent. Uh, some NASCAR history for you folks who are into that. 29 years ago, Bill France Sr. passed away at 82 years old. So Bill France was the guy who essentially started NASCAR and helped it grow into the sport that we all know today. You know, in the 1930s and 40s over on the West Coast, there was this growing phenomenon called hot rodding. And during that same period in the South, particularly in like Florida, Alabama, through the Carolinas, you know, what we now know is, is like the oval belt. <laughs> the, you know, they had this other parallel phenomenon called stock car racing. So basically, you know, two different sides of the country, people racing cars. Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. I love doing, it. Doing different things in different places. Yeah. So anyway... Um, this whole stock car racing movement started to gain some traction <laughs> and, um, leading the movement was this big guy named Bill France. Now France, um, who lived in Daytona, Florida, he was a service station owner. Um, he could kind of sense the popularity of the new sport. A lot of called, a lot of people called him a visionary as many would, but, um, the sport at the time was, you know, somewhat messy. It, it lacked, you know, proper racetracks, promoters, and, and probably most importantly, a rule book. You know, it was just kind of fly by the seat of your pants, no guaranteed purses. There were a lot of instances of drivers not getting paid after winning, all sorts of crooked stuff going on back then. So he sought to make a sanctioning body to keep all this stuff uniform. And in 1947, France called a meeting of, you know, all the different team owners, drivers, mechanics at uh, Daytona's famous Streamline Hotel. And he kind of outlined his vision for the organization of the sport of stock car racing, you know, uniform rules, insurance coverage, guaranteed winnings and purses. Um, but that meeting was the beginning of the National Association for Stock Car Racing or, or Stock Car Automobile Racing. NASCAR. NASCAR. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, stock car races in the 1950s, of course, you know, back in, back in his day, they were held on makeshift tracks, you know, often including like sections of beaches and, you know, dirt roads and things like that. You know, I always think of, you know, yeah. cars. Yeah, cars. But this kind of was what led on because of the prohibition in the, was it twenties and thirties is yes. kind of yeah, that, ultimately that's how, like stock car racing got it started. Of course, we're going to talk about the legal situations about these. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I mean, they were all held on like dirt roads. So I always think Doc Hudson and cars, Yep. you know, when he was drifting around that old dirt track and lightning McQueen just went right into the cacti cacti. 
Cacti. Cacti. That's <laughs> <laughs> the truth, though. You know, that, that's what stock car racing is. Exactly. You know, so obviously everything's got to grow. And France envisioned, you know, a big enclosed paved track with seating and vendors. And, of course, that vision became a reality in 1959 when France opened the Daytona International Speedway. So at two and a half miles around, Daytona was the same size as Indy. But instead of having 12-degree bank turns at Indy, Daytona Motor Speedway or International Speedway has a 31 degree bank at its max. So much steeper. And this kind of paved the way for the whole super speedway concept in NASCAR. Of course, now it's a multi-billion dollar industry, but I can't help but think that Bill France himself, you know, even being the visionary he was, probably would not have envisioned the result when he called together a small group of people in Daytona back in 1947 that it would grow into a multi-billion dollar industry. One of my favorite stories about Bill France, in fact, because we've got the time here, is his interaction with Wendell Scott at a particular race where, and just so you guys don't know, Wendell Scott was one of the first African-American stock car racers and probably one of the first big famous ones. Uh, Joey Ray came before him, but, you know, he, he was kind of a big deal. Uh, Wendell Scott was, and, and man, the guy could drive. But Bill France did not see color. I mean, he just saw talent and, and kind-heartedness truly, like through and through. And there was this one race where Wendell Scott, got denied gas money by their promoters when all the drivers were supposed to get gas money. He got denied for obvious reasons, you know, and Bill France literally walked up to this man and Wendell Scott told him what had happened. And of course, Bill France is running the whole place. Bill France reached into his own pocket and gave the man gas money and then went right back to all the race promoters and totally scorned all of them and said that NASCAR does not see color. Yeah, no. I mean, you're, you're a racer, you know, it doesn't matter what background, even across, you know, the entire world, you have racers from all different places, you know, like it doesn't matter. You're a race car driver. That's, that's, that's all that matters. And besides, in my, my opinion of the matter, man, like we're all one race, the human exactly. race, like that's plain and simple. Like you guys can cut it up however you want, but I'm, I'm going to love all of my people. Exactly. You know I mean, you can get first place. I like you. <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right. Moving forward a little bit. June 8th, 1938, 83 years ago, President Frankie D. Roosevelt signed the Federal Highway Aid Act of 1938. Now, this might sound boring to you, but this called for a study on what it would take to span the entirety of the continental United States with roadways. So they call it the Toll Roads and Free Roads Report, and it was the first official step towards the creation of interstate highway system in the United States. So kind of a big deal because guess what? You guys use on them. I drive on them. Um, you know, uh, we see some videos on like 1320 video of some somewhat illicit activity yeah. that supposedly happens in Mexico, but we know it doesn't. <laughs> the only, only letdown of this, this fact in history, and I was fortunate enough to experience, you know, riding on the Autobahn in Germany and just the differences between riding on the roadways for if, if you haven't been to the United States is there's a huge difference where you're on the Autobahn. It's all, you know, sh curves are huge. You know, you can keep speed through them where our interstate system nowadays is not like that at all. You constantly yeah. have congestion. You really can't oh, go that yeah. fast where the Audubon, it just, it's almost enjoyable to drive there where here it's kind yeah. of, and obviously, you know, when, when you're different, when I'm, you know, 4am heading into the gym before work and everything, it's pretty nice. Yeah, you know, no. Nobody's on the roads and you got to love a good cloverleaf switchback, man. It's mm. just great. <laughs> but no, it, it's a world of difference. If you haven't experienced, you know, United States or the Audubon, just put in that comparison. That's one thing I really wish we had just one super yeah. fast highway from, you know, across the entire United States that you I, could just hop on. I know and that go. like in Montana, there used to be a portion of the, the highway that did not have a speed limit on mm -hmm. it. Obviously it's been implemented since, but 
Yeah. But I think that was in the middle of nowhere, essentially. Oh, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which so, would be, I would love, you know, it'd be great to be able to just still get away with it. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can get away with anything. What mama don't know won't hurt. <laughs> 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 All right. Moving forward again, June 9th, 1963, a little bit of F1 history for you guys. Jim Clark won the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa, uh, driving a Lotus Climax. He started from eighth on the grid this time on his way to clinching his very first World Drivers' Championship back in 63. Now, the crazy part, the weather was so bad towards the end of the race, torrential downpours, that Colin Chapman, who was the, the head of Lotus, the beginner of Lotus Engineering, and Tony Rudd, who's, was, who was um, BRM's chief engineer, they both asked officials to stop it, but, of course, they were totally ignored. They continued on with the rest of the race, and this was old spa. So this was like with sections of deteriorated public roadways still used on the course. You know, it wasn't the nice uh, spa for anchor champs that we see today. It was um, it was a little bit sketchy. And uh, Bruce McLaren came in second, Dan Gurney in third. That was actually before uh, – I think Dan Gurney was driving for BRM. Bruce McLaren was not driving a McLaren, obviously. I can't remember what he was driving. Anyway. June 10th, 1979, 41 years ago. Uh, some of you movie buffs might like this. Paul Newman. You guys know who Paul Newman is. Uh, movie star turned race car driver. He accomplished what he considers to be the greatest feat of his racing career by racing to second place at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And he got to drive a really sweet 935 Turbo Porsche. Oh, anyway. yeah. But isn't that so cool? So the, the way it all happened in 1969... Um, he actually starred in this movie called Winning, and it was about the struggling race car driver that was driving Indianapolis 500. It was a love story and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, to prepare for the movie, Newman actually attended the Watkins Glen Racing School over in New York, and in the film, he actually performed a lot of those high-speed racing scenes in the movie himself without a stunt double, and this basically sparked a passion for racing. So in 1972, he began fully on his own racing career, winning his first SCCA event in a Lotus Elan. He ended up driving up um, up the ranks in SCCA, doing a Datsun racing series. So, I mean, he, he raced in SCCA pretty regularly from 1979 all the way up until 86, um, you know, in, in pretty big-name races, obviously Le Mans being one of them. So pretty awesome. It, it kind of reminds me, you know, there's um, obviously a, a lot of different people out there that you know, drive like Patrick Dempsey, um, you know, very accomplished actor, but his passion is race car driving and he spends all his money on race cars. Pretty awesome. Just like, you know, well, that, that's the, the, what we strive for essentially. Yeah. Like Keanu Reeves, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. again, very accomplished actor, obviously very well. Yeah. He started that, uh, arch motorcycles thing, but he actually <laughs> goes out and like tracks motorcycles on a very regular basis. He's doing what he loves to do. Absolutely. You know, I, I do appreciate a guy who likes to go fast. Yeah, I really do. I really yes. do. You're like, what are your qualifications? Well, I like speed. Higher. Absolutely higher. <laughs> Pay him double. Yeah, I don't think it worked like that when I got hired. <laughs> it was the opposite. <laughs> uh, all right. So June 11th, 1955. This one is sad. So sorry to, to, to kind of hit you guys with this one. 65 years ago. Over 80, 80 people passed away during the worst ever auto racing disaster when three cars crashed at about 150 miles an hour at Le Mans and flew into the grandstands. Now, more than 100 people were injured apart from the 80 that had already died. Um, and despite this, the organizers of the Le Mans 24-hour race decided not to stop the event. They actually kept it running. The cars were instructed to stay on the track and continue driving. Um, they didn't even lead out a safety car. So, I mean, there, there were literally bodies on the side of the racetrack, fires and everything, and the cars, all these racers just had to drive by and watch it. 
uh, some of the racers would tell stories about afterwards. Uh, they, they would just haunt them for years and years and years, having to drive by that lap after lap after lap after lap and see these people get picked up and carted off. Um, now, at the end of the event, Mercedes ended up winning, but they gave up their title after they had found that one of their team cars was actually at the center of the accident, and it had just flipped right through the grandstand. So at the end of that uh, racing season, Mercedes-Benz decided to not compete at all in any further factory-sponsored racing, um, a decision which actually lasted all the way until the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, France, of course, where Le Mans held, and other European countries also banned auto racing totally until higher safety standards were implemented. You know, safety measures such as limits on engine size, the amount of time a driver can actually be behind the wheel, and of course, substantial modification of track layout and spectating locations. All of that has obviously been improved. But you know, it changed the people. It changed the way mm-hmm. that people looked at racing for quite a long time. And of course, as we know, racing can be a very dangerous sport, but, you know, safety measures have come a long way. You got to think at this time, you know, we're, we're in the fifties, you know, racing is starting to progress more and more cars are becoming faster and faster and safety Mm -hmm. really hadn't caught up. And, you know, just that thought process of how to design a track to make it safe for everybody else. Like you go to a modern track, you know, nowadays you're not allowed that close to the stands and everything's protected where, you know, once again, in the fifties, it was a much different place and, you know, it's terrible that it happened, but obviously, you know, some bad things have to happen to, to make strides, to exactly. make things more safe. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of those things you'll never realize it's a problem until something terrible like that happens. And that's when you can have all necessary information to make it as safe as possible. And it's terrible and tragic that that many people lost their mm-hmm. lives and they didn't have to, but, you know, thankfully everybody was smart enough in the racing community to take proper precautions and do their best to keep anything like that from happening again. Luckily it is by far and above the worst auto racing accident ever. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing like that has happened since. And, and I'm pretty confident nothing ever will. Thank goodness. And you know, it's been what, 60, 70 years almost yeah. since yeah. that event. Oh, so, yeah. um, so at least, uh, that's one silver lining yeah. to it. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so stay one, safe. One silver lining on the silver arrows. Um, all right, moving forward again, June 12th, 1952, the last one up here, 68 years ago, this guy named Maurice Oli. Um, he was actually Chevrolet's chief engineer, and he competed, uh, completed sorry, his concept chassis that he codenamed Opal, uh, which would eventually become the actual chassis design for the 1953 Corvette. Um, so the Opal project had actually been initiated after GM's design division created models and drawings for a new sports car that they wanted to unveil. And later in 1952, a prototype GM fiberglass car that they had built accidentally rolled during testing, um, which was really uh, obviously kind of funny. They accidentally rolled the car and they found that this fiberglass um, body design, you know, with the fiberglass roof remained totally structurally intact. And GM engineers were like, hmm, we could probably build a car out of this. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. So they did. And um, as the project moved forward, it actually started to take shape as a rear engine car, like an all fiberglass rear engine sports car. Of course, this model was just uh, an off one concept that didn't actually get used for the Corvette, but it did, of course, get adapted into the Corvair. And then um, this final Corvette concept ended up evolving until the Corvette concept EX122 or Experimental Vehicle 122, which would actually become the 1953 Corvette that they unveiled at the Motorama show. So, uh, yeah, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it is. I like Corvettes. And then, of course, yeah. you know, Corvettes didn't sell at all. I think they had like 3,000 of them sitting in dealers everywhere. Sure. Couldn't sell them. And then your boy, Zora Arcas Duntoff, came in, made them fast, 
Um, he actually, he ended up uh, upgrading the engine, upgrading the suspension, uh, lightening the driveline, all sorts of stuff. He took it up to Pikes Peak International Hill Climb and like totally shattered the record with it there. And it was like totally disguised. So nobody even knew it was a Corvette, but he himself drove it. Like this was back in the day of like men making things, you know, like the lead engineer was like, I'm, I'll just go drive it and I'll beat the record. (laughs) Like he had that much confidence in his car and his abilities. So it's just, it's funny to hear. Corvettes weren't selling. You know, nowadays you look at, you know, a Chevy dealership, you don't see any Corvettes. There's one or two, and it's probably the top tier model that, you know, it's yep. kind of up there. But the rest of them, they're off the so, lot before they're even on the lot. Yep. And they couldn't <laughs> sell them when they came out. Couldn't do it. Crazy. It's crazy to think about. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks everybody for, uh, you know, listening in on another week in automotive history with the Car Tech Garage. Don't forget to check us out on social media and, uh, yeah, hit us up. Yeah. And as always, keep cars interesting. Bye.